Good evening, you hearty yogis. <laughs> My uh, colleague suggested I make a, the talk short tonight. Um, but I was born and raised in Minnesota. <laughs> so this is not a big challenge. We're hearty folks in Minnesota. I was listening to the heat as I was sitting there, and the sound of the heat in this room has uh, so many connotations for me from sitting a number of three-month courses myself. And so for me, the sound of the heat here um, puts me quite easily into a, a pretty deep meditative state because I've spent so many hours in this hall with that sound in a deep meditative state. So I like the sound of the heat here, though I have to admit at times it did drive me nuts. Being aversive type. But uh, tonight is pretty nice, isn't it? So it's 55 degrees up here. I don't know if I've ever given a talk in 55 degrees before. How exciting. <laughs> Come on, some of you guys admit it. Like, this was exciting. <laughs> like, something different in Yogi Land. <laughs> Even if it wasn't, com it wasn't comfortable, it was different. <laughs> we are fortunate, aren't we, that we have heat. Something to be grateful for on a crisp late fall day. <laughs> early winter, let's call it early winter. So tonight's talk is about uh, ways of investigating not-self. And I want to start with a poem. It's one of my favorite poems by Pablo Neruda, the famous Chilean poet. I'll read it in English and then I'll read it in Spanish, in his native language. Oh, and this was written in the last year of his life. It's, it's more a fragment. He had a book of poems of fragment, or, or maybe he, they were complete, but they don't have titles and they're just, it was the last year of his life and he had cancer. He knew he was dying and he chose to uh, go to the coast of um, Chile kind of in a more remote area, and he spent a lot of time alone and quiet. Or not totally alone, his, his long-term lover wife was with him. But. Is the sea there? Tell it to come in. Bring me the great bell, one of the green race. Not that one, the other one. The one that has a crack in its bronze mouth. And now, nothing more. I want to be alone with my essential sea and the bell. I don't want to speak for a long time. Silence. I still want to learn. I want to know if I exist. Allí está el mar. Muy bien, que pase. Dadme la gran campana, la de la raya. Verde, no esa, no es la otra, 
la que tiene en la boca de bronce una ruptura. Y ahora, nada más, quiero estar solo con el mar principal y la campana. Quiero no hablar por una larga vez. Silencio. Quiero aprender aún. Quiero saber si existo. Who are we? What are we? Do we exist? How do we exist? In Buddha, Buddhism, these questions are answered in the context of the understanding of anatta, or not-self, fairly unique in uh, the world's religions. Not-self is uh, fairly easily misunderstood. People often say they want to attain not-self, which um, doesn't quite make sense to me. <laughs> A better way of understanding this concept may be the um, practice of of studying the creation of self and to go through the process with mindfulness. There's the famous statement from Descartes, a European philosopher, I think, therefore I am. It's been used uh, through the centuries to um, describe our existence, but I think rather than being descriptive, it's more prescriptive. <laughs> I think, <laughs> therefore, I am. So what we find with Buddhism is that perhaps we don't exist like we thought we did. That's what we're studying. A more modern, um, I think, therefore, I am, uh, I saw in a joke in the a New Yorker, there's this guy at his computer, his, and he's a uh, little thought bubble. I Google myself, I get a hit, therefore I am. <laughs> Here's another good one. I take my spell checker's relentless attempts to turn selfies into selfless as spiritual advice. <laughs> But more seriously, uh, I'd like to read a quote from the famous Zen master Dogen. And this is a well-known quote. Most of you have probably uh, heard it before. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by the myriad things. Recently, after having read that quote um, many times, I decided to look up the word actualize. I was curious what uh, it might mean. I had some sense, but I wanted to see. And it says to make real. To forget the self is to be made real by all things, by the myriad things. So there's this sense with this deep... Um, understanding of anatta, there's also this deep connection with all beings and all things, a sense of non-separation. I love that sense in this quote, the openness of it. 
To study the Buddha way is to study the self. I just want to say here at the beginning that sometimes the thought of not-self is frightening to people. But the actual experience is one of freedom. So sometimes the thought is uh, scary because there's a sense of like, where do I go or what happens to me? (laughs) Um, Or sometimes this experience is hard for people because... Uh, trauma can get mixed in. So as we go deeper into our meditation practice, sometimes when we're having, um, you could say, meditative openings or or insights, at times you you could say that trauma um, conditioning piggybacks onto it. So for example, with the understanding of not-self, sometimes there's a piggybacking of like a sense of voidness or a sense of um, emptiness. And then, we, and then we wind up thinking that's the, the experience of not-self, and then we wind up being scared of that experience. So it's really important um, that, we, that we understand that those are separate experiences. So we're not talking about voidness or emptiness or the great loneliness. or um, that, that's, that's conditioning often coming from trauma or just being a human being is traumatic enough. Um, the actual experience of not-self is one of freedom from contraction or freedom from clinging, freedom from identification with any of this experience as me or mine. So freedom of, of that. <laughs> this is all we're getting rid of, folks, is just this. <laughs> and so it's freedom then from all the, the kind of the hardening of the heart and mind. That's basically the self is a hardening of heart and mind and body and energy. It's a melting of the ice mountains that I think I mentioned a number of weeks ago. It's a melting of the ice mountains in the heart and the mind. Susan Murphy, a Zen, a Zen um, Australian Zen poet, author, she says that this experience is a delightfully free and unburdened sense of yourself stepping right into the world just as it is, finally home in reality and ready to help. A delightfully free and unburdened sense of yourself stepping right into the world just as it is. Another kind of introductory remark before I go into some of the ways that we can uh, investigate self and not self. Sometimes people use a, 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 a mental note, selfing, in their practice. And um, I think that I just want to recommend that if you do that, that you do it with care. Because sometimes um, we, we use this word, oh, selfing, and then there's this kind of negative overtone, like, oh, I did it again, or like, oh, bad yogi, (laughs) there's a self here. Um, 
and then there's sometimes kind of like the word selfing and then a kind of a dismissal of the experience rather than a deep ex- uh, investigation or connection with the experience. So if you use that note, I would say, what is your actual experience? Selfing is very much conceptual. What is your experience? Is it contraction? Do you feel like tightening in the heart or tightening in the body or tightening in the mind? Or is it a certain thought? So getting, that's what we want to do. We want to get really into the nitty-gritty of the experience of, of, of self and what that feels like. And um, through that study of the self, um, our understanding transforms. Those ice mountains begin to melt. And the sense of connection with all beings grows. So I'm recommending that rather than um, having a cognitive or an intellectual understanding of not-self, that we, that we really um, do our moment-to-moment investigation to see experientially what is self, studying self. And as we do this, we get more and more sensitive to the contraction of self or the, um, the glomming onto or the believing in this kind of independent fixed self. And we get more and more accustomed to the freedom of the kind of groundlessness of not being engaged in that contraction. A groundlessness that feels like ease, spaciousness, flexibility, lightness and love. So let's look at some of these experiential doorways into not-self. And most of them we've talked about before. In fact, that's all we've been talking about is (laughs) not-self. But we don't always state it so clearly. So I want to kind of make the connection um, with many of the teachings that we've talked about and see them through the lens of not-self and maybe do some pointing about how we can study the self. So one of the great ways to study self is to study grasping or clinging, greed, and aversion. We've talked about them a lot, right? So we have the experience, I say this experience of wanting or greed, grasping comes. Can we feel that? How do we feel that? We can see that there's this uh, sense of growing density in the heart, mind, and even body. You can feel the kind of the congealing of the sense of self. There's this narrowing inwards when grasping is present. And, and, it's, and it's about me. That's, that's uh, the purpose of grasping, is me and what I can get, right? So it's, um, we feel that contractioning and, and you could say the hardening of the heart and mind. That's the creation of self. And that hardening is the separation. We've now separated ourselves out of life so that we can objectify it and get what we want.
a lot of times um, we see this kind of hardening or this um, congealing more clearly after we've had a period where there's been um, a relative absence of it. So sometimes we're in our practice and things are just kind of flowing along. There's this flow of experience. The um, mindfulness is flowing with experience. And then... um, and then that ends. <laughs> we like that. It feels good. And the reason why we like it is because there's a relative absence of a sense, a strong sense of self. There's, um, there's not that hardening. There's not that, that separation barrier. Um, and so then when it ends and we see kind of that energy of of grasping our version come back in it's then it's more obvious to us because we've lived outside of it really most of the time this is how we live grasping aversion grasping aversion take your pick a <laughs> little bit of distraction <laughs> grasping aversion grasping aversion and so in meditation we have the, this opportunity and at times when as the, the factors of concentration and mindfulness strengthen that that there's a sense of flow Greed is um, such an interesting mind state, grasping and aversion. They're both very intriguing to me. One of the yogis today, he said I could share this. He said that greed is a creative genius. (laughs) And there's that that sense with both of these mind states of how um, creative they are in in, uh, creating reality and creating the sense of self so that we can get what we want or avoid what we don't want. With time, what happens is we're mindful of grasping and aversion. So they start out very dense, or they're denser when you really want something or you really don't want something. They start out very dense, um, but over time they start to become, you could say, more permeable, less hard, more flexible. One example I sometimes use is, um, let's say you have a big piece of fabric and you have a little pin, and you poke holes in the fabric with the pen. So at first it seems like nothing's happening, it's just a piece of fabric, but when you poke enough holes, you can actually start to see through the fabric. It loses some of its density, some of its opaqueness, becomes more transparent. You could say that mindfulness with grasping and aversion is the same. You know, Every moment of mindfulness is like poking a hole in that cloth. First, it doesn't seem like much is happening, but then grasping and aversion become more transparent, less dense, more flexible. It's like we come out of the trance more easily, the trance of of greed, the trance of aversion. In the teachings on dependent origination, which um, I don't know if we've talked a whole lot about this time, there's uh, 12 steps of kind of the creation of self. 
And um, the part that I'm talking about right here is, first, we have contact, right? We have a moment of sense contact. Some sense experience happens. Has feeling tone. Feeling tone's there. And then we react to the feeling tone, right? We react by craving, clinging to what's pleasant, pushing away what's unpleasant. And in the, the steps of dependent origination, we have contact, feeling tone, craving, attachment, becoming, and birth. The process of creating self. And each one of these, like craving, attachment, becoming, and birth, you could say there's a greater congealing, a greater kind of um, hardness (laughs) as the self kind of becomes more and more um, dense. And so we can feel this for ourselves. And when the mindfulness is stronger, then um, there's times where uh, it cuts right through the grasping and aversion. It's just like, oh, that's grasping. Or there's times when the mindfulness is strong, right? The feeling tone, contact feeling tone. We're with the feeling tone. It's okay. It's just pleasant. It's just unpleasant. We don't go all the extra mile into craving, attachment, becoming, and birth. And what's left when we can drop it? Just simplicity. Space, openness, connection, intimacy. So that's one way, working with grasping and aversion, we're, we're also working with self and not self. Or self and freedom from the contraction of self. Another way that we can um, work with, with self and not self is through Identifying and not identifying with experiences that arise. So the Buddha divided up this self into various categories. He had a couple ways of dividing up the self. And the most common ways um, were the five aggregates and the six sense experiences, you could say. Sometimes it's divided up into 18. If you do the sense base, the sense object, and the sense consciousness, then you get 18. But we can just say the six sense experiences. So the five aggregates are the six sense experiences. So sometimes we talk about ourselves as, as the five aggregates um, body, so our physical, phys- physicality, and then feeling tone, perception, mental formations or all the things we do in our mind around feeling tone and perception and consciousness. The five aggregates. So this is, this is a description of, of, of what we are, is, is this combination of these five aggregates coming together. Or sometimes he described the sixth sense basis. So what we are is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, body sensations, and cognizing the mind. That's it. (laughs) 
So these experiences are arising and passing away. And what we see is that um, we have ways that we kind of, we glom on (laughs) or contract around or identify with one of these experiences. And we do this a lot, right? So we can see how we do it. So for example, let's say there's a knee pain. So using mindfulness, we may be with it, the changing sensations. Really, it's sensations rising and passing away. That's all that's happening. But we get involved with the knee pain and the story about my knee pain and how I'm going to need knee surgery and I hope I, um, uh, I can still walk and hike a lot because I like to do that. And, and, and the whole creation of me because of these sensations. Now, we're not denying that on one level, yes, it's my knee, I have to take care of it. Um, That's all true on one level. But on another level, it's sensations arising and passing away. And so we can watch how much we make a drama. A lot of times I explain IDing as um, identifying with the, uh, as making a drama out of. So we can see how much we make a drama out of it. And then we can see what happens when we're just with the sensations. And we can see for ourselves the sense of self and the sense of freedom from, from the contraction of self. Or another example, uh, maybe we identify with some experience of the mind. I know I remember one time on retreat, I went through this period where I was judging all the other yogis relentlessly. I'm sure some of you have done it. And uh, <laughs> it went on and on. And uh, I had lots of um, oh, things to say about different yogis and how they walked and ate and what they wore and um, what kind of person they were. And so I, I finally I went, into my <laughs> I went into my interview with, uh, with, it was actually with Joseph. I went into interview with him and I kind of was like, oh, Joseph, I'm such a horrible person. I'm doing this and blah, I'm judging all the time. Bad person, you know. And um, <laughs> so I was, really, I was really identifying with those thoughts. I had created a whole story about me. I'm judgmental. I'm a bad person. Um, so he just listens for a while and then he looks at me and he says, it's just a thought. I was like, oh. And he was right. It was just a thought. And so uh, because of that, that interaction with him, I, I was then able, when I would, a judging thought would arise, it would be like, oh, there's a judging thought. Not identifying. So can feel the difference, right, between identifying with judgment thoughts and not identifying with them. Identifying with them, wow, this whole sense of self. Contraction, dukkha, right? Not identifying with it, no problem. Just an arising, just a passing away. That happened like 30 years ago, and, you know, I still remember that interview because it was such a teaching. We start to see these things arise from causes and conditions. They pass away. We see that they're universal, that we're not the only ones that feel them too, right? That's another way we might identify, let's say, with a, an emotion. 
So we're really angry, lots of rage coming up and everything. We're like, oh, nobody else here feels that. It's just me. <laughs> and, and, um, and again, it's that, that sense of self. And then when we, 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 we relax, it's like, oh, anger, rage. Ah, universal human experience. So identifying, not identifying. So the idea is that it gets much simpler. In fact, in some ways you could say a hallmark of of not-self is um, simplicity. There's a very well-known sutra that I'm going to read a little bit of uh, because it's so simple (laughs) and captures the flavor of this. So this is Bahia. And Bahia was a, um, he was a, a spiritual seeker of some type during the time of the Buddha. I don't have all the details. Um, but, but apparently he was practicing in a way that, that wasn't really uh, going in the right direction. Somebody pointed this out to him and said, you should go talk to the Buddha. He'll straighten you out. So he, uh, he went off to try to find the Buddha. And he, ca- he came upon the Buddha and all his... Um, his retinue, his, his group of folks with him, and um, they were going for alms round, which is not really a good time to interrupt <laughs> a monastic life. <laughs> but Bahia was very um, concerned, and so he goes up to the Buddha, and he's like, you know, please tell me, tell me the teachings, I need some teachings, and, and the Buddha's like, uh, not a great time, Bahia, you know, how about later? Um, and Bahia's like, look, I might die. Like, you really, you got to give me these teachings. And the Buddha's like, ah. And um, then finally he asked a third time, and apparently if, if you're asked three times, you're kind of obligated. So, um, so he goes, okay. So maybe it's really short and sweet because he needed to get back to his alms round, but um, it's actually just great, short and sweet. He says, here in Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely the seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sensed will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized will be merely what is cognized. In this way you should train yourself, Bahia. When, Bahia, for you, in the seen is merely what is seen, and the heard is merely what is heard, and the sensed is merely what is sensed, and the cognized is merely what is cognized, then, Bahia, you will not be with that. When, Bahia, you are not with that, then, Bahia, you will not be in that. When, Bahia, you are not in that, then, Bahia, you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. Now, through this brief Dhamma teaching of the Lord Buddha, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth, apparently he wore bark cloth, was immediately freed from the taints without grasping. And then the Buddha went on his way. And apparently Bahia was correct. He was um, attacked by a cow and killed shortly afterwards. But he got enlightened first. It's great. So it's just saying, seeing, hearing, sensing, cognizing. Don't have to add a lot, right? Don't have to add all of the 
drama of self. There's that simplicity. It's warming up in here. (laughs) I'm suddenly very warm. (laughs) We're up to 61, everybody. It's pretty good. something about Bahia that tickled people, apparently. (laughs) So as many of you know, there's our friend Mara, um, kind of the Buddhist devil or the Buddhist manifestation of delusion. And he has a little bit of a run-in with the nun Vahira, which I'm going to read to you about. At one time in Savati, the nun Vahira, getting up in the morning, took her bowl and robe and entered Savati for alms. After eating and returning from the alms round, she went into the forest and sat under a tree for her daily meditation. Then Mara, the evil one, wanting to arouse fear, trembling, and dread in the nun Vihara and wanting her concentration to fall away, went and addressed her with a verse. By whom is this being created? What is the maker of this being? How does this being arise? How does this being cease? Then this occurred to the nun Vahira. Who could this be addressing me with a verse? This must be Mara, the evil one, wanting to arouse fear, trembling, and dread in me, and wanting me to fall away from concentration. So the nun Vahira knew this was Mara, and she dressed him with, back with a verse. Why talk on about a being, Mara? Are you not just lost in wrong views? This is just a tangle of conditions. Here a being is not to be found. Just as the word chariot designates an arrangement of parts, so where there are aggregates there occurs a concept being. There is nothing but suffering arising, nothing but suffering which ceases. The Mara, the evil one, thought, the nun Vahira knows me, and depressed and suffering, he vanished from that very spot. (laughs) The great thing about Mara is as soon as you see him, uh, he loses his power. And this happens in a lot of sutras. Sometimes he goes and um, he sits in the dirt and plays in the dirt with a stick, sad and dejected, (laughs) after after he's seen and named. It's... um, can try it. Mara, I see you. We're not going to get through it all. Okay, another doorway into not-self is impermanence. Everything changes. So mostly, um, because we don't look deeply, we see permanence in this world. We see it because we expect to see it and because we filter out uh, or don't look deeply enough. But vipassana, the meaning of vipassana, is to see clearly. So that means to look very deeply. 
And when we look very deeply, what we see is that everything is changing. And what we see, um, the more sharp our perception gets, you could say, the more concentration, the more mindfulness that we have, the more that we see change. And sometimes people say, well, everything's speeding up. It's not that everything's speeding up, it's that our um, attention is refined enough to see the speed at which everything is changing. And it's astounding at times. Some of you have commented about that. And so when we see the, the rapidity of change and the constancy of change, we have to start wondering what can we peg down as me or mine. Which part of all this experience that keeps changing can we claim as some kind of fixed, independent self? Because usually when we're talking about self, there's the idea of independent, um, fixed in some way. What can we nail down? Hmm. So in the sutras... The Buddha asks a lot of, um, sometimes he asks the monastics questions, and they're usually set up so they're pretty easy to answer (laughs) and to get right. (laughs) And so there's one um, sutra I was going to bring it. I forgot it was on my iPad, but it's um, a sutra about not-self, and he's asking the the monks, um, uh, for example, body, is is body permanent or impermanent? What's the right answer? Impermanent. Then he'd say, um, is what is um, impermanent? Is it ease or stress? And they'd say, oh, stress, for sure. And then he'd say, well, can we regard as self that which is impermanent, that which is stressful? Can that be regarded as self? And the monks would say, no, sir. Um, and then he'd go through the other aggregates in the same question. So what can we claim? So just seeing impermanence is one way, as we're seeing it, we're understanding um, not-self. We're understanding that, that it all changes so quickly that we can't hold on to it. We can't claim it because we can't even hold on to it. And when we want to hold on to it, hold on to anything, something, make everything more grounded, more real, more me, there's this uh, jerky quality to life. It's, it's, it's like this. And when we can go with the flow of change without resistance, then that's peace. Um, a Zen teacher, Jacques Cousseau Kwong, has such a beautiful way of talking about this. He says, Everything is changing. In one way, it's complete freedom. It is said that there are 6.5 billion instances in 24 hours. In one second, there are 7,000 instances. This is how refined um, Buddhist psychology gets. As we are sitting here, they are continuously coming and continuously going, just like when I strike my stick on the floor. Bam, bam, bam. Isn't that wonderful? This is complete freedom. 
We see ourselves as firewood going to ash. We see ourselves 30 years old going to 60. My God, look out, here comes 70. We see ourselves only in the linear, the sequential moving towards an end. We don't understand that within each 24-hour day, there are 6.5 billion instances of life, death, life, death, gain, loss, gain, loss, dark, light, bodhisattvas, clouds, cars, you and me. All the dharmas are appearing and disappearing continually out of the beginningless beginning and the endless end. This is really fantastic. It gives us such a very wide liberating view that to even call it Buddha Dharma or anything else diminishes it. You can feel the freedom in this passage, the complete, you could say, okayness with all of this change, the complete non-resistance, which is a deep understanding of not-self. In the sutras where the Buddha is talking about not-self and the aggregates, uh, one of the questions is this question about is something uh, permanent or impermanent and can we take what is impermanent as ourselves? The other question he often asks is, is it controllable or is it not controllable? This is another kind of test whether it's self. So if some aspect of this mind, heart, and body is self, we should be able to yeah, boss it around a little bit, right? Give it, be able to control it. This body, have you noticed? Can you control the body? We're kind of control freaks, all of us. But control is arguing with reality. It's tiring. It's one of the ways that self manifests in this sense of trying to control this flow. And again, we start to see that everything arises because of many conditions, causes and conditions, passes away because those conditions change. Much of it we can't control. I'm not saying we don't have agency. We're not going there. We're, we, uh, we still do the best we can. But, you know, today was a great example of not being able to control. Could you control the, the, the circumstances here? No. It's interesting when things change um, Unexpectedly, I always like to watch my mind and see how long it takes for my mind to adjust to the new reality. So, like, canceled plane flights is like one of the best places to practice. <laughs> but the heat going out in the building, and it was interesting because this afternoon I'm like, do I plan the talk? Do I not plan the talk? Am I giving a talk? Am I not giving a talk? And, uh, you know, I didn't really know if it was going to be super cold in here, so we were having debates about whether we'd have a talk. And, um, just watching, like, is this being able to accommodate to the uncontrollability of life? When we can accommodate, there's less sense of self, and when we can't accommodate, there's a strong sense of self in that resistance. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then it's out there and it's in here too, right? So we see it right in here. <laughs> Reminds me of... Um, hmm. now this is kind of around identification. All of these kind of can come together. A number of years ago, I don't know, I think it's been about five now, I went to the eye doctor and, um, you know, after the exam he says... Um, you need distance glasses. And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> I said, I, I have great distance vision, always have. <laughs> I really, you know, thought like he must be making a mistake. And um, so then he gives me these glasses. He put these on and like look at that poster on the wall. So I put them on, I look at the poster and I'm like, oh. <laughs> I guess you're right. And um, and then, he, and then so in my 40s, I'd gotten reading glasses, right? So this was my 50s. I got these needed distance glasses. He's like, you can have um, bifocals or progressives. I'm like, bifocals? <laughs> right? Like, I don't think so. <laughs> but it was interesting because, first of all, there's this attachment, right? And then this wish that I could control the aging of this body, right? It's not controllable. There's such a lesson, aging, lesson in control and letting go and what one teacher called a wholehearted, unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. That's the opposite of control, is a wholehearted, unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. So last week I went to the eye doctor because <laughs> um, my sight seemed quite off. Um, and he says, oh, you have a cataract growing. <laughs> I looked at him and said, that's for old people. He's <laughs> like, well, you're a little young, but <laughs> Oh, this body, right? We're back to identification, right? Identifying with the body and... Um, wanting to control it, that's, that leads to that contraction of self. And then so it's like, how long does it take me to, oh, okay, I have a cataract. Like, how long does it take to get there, right? Because I've practiced a lot, oh, it's a lot faster than it used to be. A lot faster. To slide into that wholehearted, unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. So we learn how to cooperate with the universe rather than resist it. The resisting creates, we can feel it, create that sense of hardening, inflexibility, all of that which is a creation of self. That's how it feels. And when we can learn to cooperate, then what we feel is the ease and the spaciousness and the lightness of not-self. a little more time. We're not going to get through everything, but I did want to get to this one next part. Not bad. Uh, Somebody left a question asking about intentions. They're like, why are we paying attention to intentions? You know, that about to moment before you do something that we uh, introduced in the instructions. Um, 
One of the reasons that we pay attention to intentions, attention to intentions, is that it helps us um, cut through the the identification with ourselves as the decision maker and as the controller, related decision maker controller. So it's it's kind of one of the places that we hold on to a sense of self is that um, I'm making the decisions here. That's me. That's who I am, the person who's deciding and organizing and controlling this being, you could say, or, or put, keeping this being together. So I'll give you an example of how this helps us um, understand that, that uh, it's not that easy, simple. <laughs> so one time I was sitting in um, my room over in one of the buildings over there, and um, I noticed cold, and then I noticed the thought I should put on a sweater, and then I noticed the intention to move, then I noticed the movement to get the sweater, the intention to put on the sweater, the putting on the sweater. And after I finished that, this thought occurred to me, where was I? Where was I in that sequence? It was just a chain of cause and effect a chain of conditioning, one moment following the next. So intention, um, I mean, there's one way that intention is rising every, every moment, but, but, but when we're looking at it and seeing it, we're not going to catch every moment of intention. It's one of the universal characteristics of each moment. But, but we can catch the intention before an action. We can see that um, it's the link, the link between the thought and the action and that it's all conditioned. It's all an unfolding, conditioned process. So that doesn't mean that we totally drop the idea that, that we have some agency and that we make decisions, right? So don't, don't go there. <laughs> um, The truth is that all of these explorations of not-self, um, we, we, you could say that we infuse the understanding of not-self into how we relate to this relative world. So I still answer to the name Rebecca, and I still pay my bills, and um, I still make decisions. <laughs> but there's, what, what changes is there's a, more of a, of, a, of a lightness, and uh, um, as I said, more ease, spaciousness, lightness, flexibility. Um, that gets infused to how I do all those things. That's the, the understanding of not-self being infused into this relative self that does exist and functions in the world. So we've gone through a number of ways of um, exploring self and not self. See if I can remember them all. (laughs) That's the other thing that happens with age, right? If we have attachment to memory, we're in trouble. Uh, (laughs) Uncontrollability, impermanence, um, identifying and not identifying with experience, um, 
grasping and aversion. I think that's what we've been through. Oh, and intentions. Wow, lots, lots of ways to explore. Um, Two left and I only get to do one. Okay, briefly. Um, Mana, which uh, Tara mentioned last night. Mana, or uh, it's often translated as conceit, but I think comparing is a better translation. So that um, seeing ourselves as as better than, equal to, or worse than others. Comparing ourselves to others. It turns out that this is really, really deep... um, conditioning of self, you could say. You might have thought that this was your personal deficiency, but according to Buddhist psychology, mana sticks around until full enlightenment. It's one of the last um, fetters to be released. And so we see um, how when we compare ourselves to others, it's pretty obvious that the sense of self gets stronger, right? I'm better than others for this reason, that reason. (laughs) And it's interesting, you can choose anything. Last night, Tara gave a long list. Um, With the eyesight thing, for example, what I realized when I had to get distance classes that I actually um, was arrogant about my my eyesight. That I I thought I had, you know, really good eyesight. I felt good about that. I didn't know that until, you know, I didn't go around saying to everybody, I have great eyesight. <laughs> but, but when he, you know, affronted me with the, with the reality of needing distance glasses, I, I realized that there was like some arrogance there. And I said to him, I've always had good eyesight. <laughs> it's funny, we can get attached to anything. <laughs> and then we can create a story of ourselves in comparison to others. Um, and then those stories are so slippery. We just make up whatever story kind of fits our, our view about ourselves. It's really um, quite uh, slippery. So like if we're better than, if we're superior in our mind, we choose something, like eyesight, <laughs> we choose something that we're good at to look at. And then we're like, yeah, see? but we do it the other side too right so if we're worse than we think we're worse than we we choose um to see or we choose some quality that may not be our strength and say see i'm not i'm not any good and we start to see that these two actually um that we seesaw between them sometimes they're the same they're the same paradigm the comparing whether you come out ahead or you come out um, um lesser than or whether you come out equal, there's still stress in the equal. There's a stress of comparing, and there's a sense of self and separate, you, me, right? So you can feel that. You can see that. Me like this. You. <laughs> and we have a little um, yogi contests. We don't talk about them, of course, but... Like who can eat the slowest or who can um, get in the hall first or stay in the hall the latest or um, walk the slowest or whatever. You may have some other yardsticks. (laughs) 
So it's good to name mana, whether um, it's superiority, inferiority, equality, equal um, mana. It's good to notice that and to name it and to um, basically learn not to identify with it, no matter how we come out. It's the same story. It's the same paradigm. So what we do when we step out of that, and most of these descriptions, I've talked about how it is when we create self and then how it is when we um, don't do that. So, so stepping out of the paradigm of comparing better than, equal than, worse than, um, is a kind of um, humility in the best sense of that word, a humbleness and an authenticity. It's really about coming back to the truth of this experience and this being, not in comparison, because that always um, bends it. But what's the truth here? And practice helps us uh, settle deeply into the truth of our lives, into the truth of the human condition as it manifests in this being. And what we see over time is what um, somebody said. I don't remember who, but they said, nothing that is human is alien to me. Nothing that is human is alien to me. What rest. What spaciousness. And this learning to trust in our own experience. What is my truth right now in this moment? What is the truth? And we learn that it's not, um, it's just as as it is. It's not better than, worse than, or equal to anybody else. So that's this humbleness is stepping out of the whole paradigm of comparing. It's back to the freedom from being extraordinary, the freedom to be ordinary. We lose interest in shoring up this ego, shoring up um, this uh, sense of self. My favorite, uh, very short poem <laughs> that somehow captures this for me, this, this beautiful humbleness. Uh, Ryo Khan again, the, friend, uh, the um, Japanese hermit poet. Today's begging is finished. At the crossroads, I wander by the side of the Buddhist shrine talking with some children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. Ah, there's so much freedom and spaciousness in that um, authenticity and in that resting with the way things are. Well, my colleagues did not get their wish. It's been an hour, (laughs) and we're still here. But it would be a good time for us to end. Hmm. So, investigating self and freedom from the contraction of self. 
And we see in our own practice that we go back and forth and back and forth. The self congeals, it gets um, dense, that sense of self, and then it uh, relaxes and eases, becomes more transparent, um, more spaciousness. And you could say that our own hearts and minds are working out our freedom with diligence. So we don't make self worse and not self better. We just study the self. Study the self. And over time, um, there is this natural uh, development of, of the openness and the spaciousness and the lightness of being. We get the taste versus taste of the open heart, the open mind. You've all had tastes. And these tastes strengthen over time. So we work out our freedom with diligence, just as the Buddha um, described on his deathbed. Just as the Buddha instructed us on his deathbed. Let's sit for a minute. We're so blessed to be here together. Cozy and warm. (laughs) Warming. Please enjoy your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.